You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. When I was in my mid-twenties, I broke my kneecap. I've mentioned this story before, I think. Uh, they had to take out all these pieces from the back. And, uh, and at the time, I was talking to various doctors about what this would mean for me, because, of course, at the time, it meant a lot. <laughs> uh, and I hadn't healed yet, and I was asking, are there options? Are there things that can happen? And, and they kept saying, well, there, no, there's really nothing you can do. You know, we can, we can take out these little bits, and then you just do your best. And I would say, every time I'd talk to a different doctor, I said, but can't you, can't you just replace it? You know, I knew people with knee replacements. I knew people with hip replacements. And here I had a kneecap, and I thought, let's do this thing. And finally, one doctor was very patient with me, and he said, he said here's the thing. There's no such thing as a kneecap. And then he went on to explain that a kneecap is, is part of your quadricep. So a kneecap has bone elements, but it also has muscle elements. It has tendon elements. And you can't just snip it and tack a new one on. I said, what? I said so there's, there's nothing. And they said, well, there's a precedent that some, occasionally people will try and do it from a cadaver. They'll take a cadaver's kneecap because they can take more of the whole operation. And they'll try to fuse that on. He said, but, but here's the thing. He said, there's no end. Where do you cut it off? He said, the only way that you can really transplant a kneecap is to transplant the whole leg. And the only way to transplant a whole leg is to transplant the whole body. And finally, he said, functionally speaking, your kneecap is your whole body. Which was A, really disappointing to me, but B, something I had never really thought of before. I hadn't conceived of anything that way before. You know, people get new hearts. They, they, we, we change stuff out all the time. It was, it's almost like the, the kneecap was, this, was the magical piece. It's the Jenga piece that you can't take out. I was thinking about that this morning because of a conversation that I had on Sunday night when I sat at the temple on Herring Cove. And uh, a really interesting question was raised about consciousness. And all of us in the room started having this conversation about what consciousness is and what consciousness isn't and what consciousness does and how the teachings describe consciousness in multiple ways to such a degree that we can really talk about various kinds of consciousness. So we were talking about big consciousness and little consciousness. And I was very aware as this was happening. And at one point I, I pointed it out, even though I was involved in it as well. We were talking about consciousness as if it existed. 
as if it was a thing, as if it was real. I wanted to talk about that a little bit tonight. This is, this is nothing new. This is kind of like uh, when you're reading something online and a little dialogue box pops up as a reminder of something, or maybe this is an intermission. This is a, a don't forget, <laughs> because it's easy to forget. When we talk about things being real in a, in a, a traditional Buddhist context, we have to be careful. Because we can slip into this idea that if we say something isn't real, that it means it's false, right? Or that it's not there at all, right? And if we apply that broadly, we can fall into all sorts of things. We can say, well, your suffering, your suffering isn't real. Your suffering is real. It just isn't real in the way that we think of as real. In the same way that racism is real. But it isn't, it isn't something we can hold. It isn't something that, we, that is discreet. Real in this context refers to something that is inherent. That, that holds its own without any influence from something else. It's static. And when we talk about the seals of Buddhism, one of the things that we establish is that there's absolutely nothing that has that characteristic. Nothing. And we can play these games, and we especially like to talk about it in terms of the self, because it's easy, in a way, to say, well, you know, my, uh, you know, I don't have the same blood today that I did a few weeks ago, right? And my hair keeps falling out. And, and you know, I lost a tooth when I was a kid and all these things. And, and, you know, I see my children get bigger and bigger. You can say, okay, well, the self is not static, clearly. That's a nice starting point. But... But where I think it becomes trickier, even though in a way it should be more obvious, is when we move into things that we can't see. I was at a meeting today in which people were, were planning uh, for a, a different organization. They were trying to plan a retreat, a Buddhist retreat, and they wanted it to be, they were starting with the theme. They wanted to come up with a theme that was, that was meaningful, but also kind of broadly accessible. Something that anyone would want to go to because it was going to be held at a big venue. And it was, you know, they wanted as many people as possible to come. And so everyone's throwing around these, these themes and these titles. And there's a, a kind of natural narrowing that happens when you take on this task. You know, there's some, something that starts to sound like it comes out of the Buddhist retreat generator. And, and what you end up with is variations on working with something, something, right? So working with difficult emotions, working with fear, working through obstacles, right? Something like that. And in each case, 
the whole premise is that your fear or your difficult emotions are there. <laughs> right? That fear is there. Or if you're unlucky, it's here, right? Or it's in your pocket. And you need to somehow find a way to relate to it. How do you hold it? How do you look at it? How do you touch it? Do you ignore it? Do you look straight at it? What's the right way to relate to this animal? This station break is a reminder that there's no beginning and there's no end to fear. It's like a kneecap. In the same way that there's no beginning or end to suffering. We try to solve this problem by becoming more specific. Right? We say, well, what is suffering? Well, I, I'm not sure what suffering is. So let's look at my suffering. Right? So now it's something smaller and more discreet. I read an article recently that was talking about emptiness. And, and the author was, he was a Tibetan teacher, and he was speaking to how science actually, these days, quantum physics, and is really interested in emptiness. But that what science does is, is it tries to label it. So it, it observes something related to emptiness, and then it says, well, let's, let's call that a quark. <laughs> let's call that a string. As a way of creating what feels like clarity. And last week we were talking about clarity. Clarity as not knowing. But if we call something something, that's the opposite of that. <laughs> right? We're giving this a name, we're giving it a shape. We're saying it, the, the emptiness looks like this. So we can do this with our suffering. And imagine that, imagining that my suffering is something that I carry. Again, either I carry it in a skillful way or an unskillful way. It's a burden to me or it's not. It's noisy or it's quiet. It has characteristics, right? And I relate to those characteristics. It has no beginning, though, in the sense that it has no boundary from me, right? There can't be me and suffering. There just can't. Or else I could throw suffering out the window. And it has no end in the sense that, at least from the perspective of, of Buddhism traditionally, it's, it's fundamentally the same for everyone. You can have a bowl of pudding and someone else can have a bowl of pudding, but if it's the same pudding, my pudding and your pudding, is a, it's a false distinction. <laughs> right? 
you're, you're creating a boundary around something, right? Or, or maybe a better example would be to say, this is my part of the lake and that's your part of the lake. This, for me, is a really interesting tension between Buddhism and not just contemporary culture, but I think psychology. Because we have a, not universal, but I think there's a, a, a popular call for us to, in as detailed a way as we can, characterize our experiences in the sense that we make them characters. <laughs> And they have different roles, just like in that, that movie where you could see inside the girl's mind and there was anger and there was, you know, there were... There's an idea that someone who has a clear notion of the, the workings of their mind is the person who has clearly characterized those experiences and is able to work with them skillfully, take them down from the shelf, examine them, put them back. Whereas Buddhism posits really the opposite, that again, that clarity is not looking at the world and seeing all the clear edges between things, but looking at the world as something that's much more muddied. Where in an encounter with another person, you're not insistent, at least, on where you stop and that person starts. And when you experience happiness, You don't take it as an object that appeared today and might be gone tomorrow. But instead that when happiness arises, that you feel it as something like, like another layer of skin. It's you. It's you in the state of happiness. And when you feel fear, it's you in the state of fear. It's not you and fear. It's not you and anxiety. It's not you and stress. Stress is another big one that we talk about like we, like we carry it in a jar, you know, or we carry it in a little box with holes poked on top so that it can breathe. There's no gap between you and your stress. It's just the way that it feels to breathe right now. It's the way that it feels to sit. It's the way that it feels to sleep or to not sleep. So when we walk down the street, and I, I was appreciating the rain today, because the rain 
it, it blurs everything. It washes away lines. It makes things run into other things. Right? We can take that soft gaze. Right? We can allow the question to sit of, of when, when does this color become this color? in a rainbow what's what's the moment that red becomes orange or that orange becomes yellow or that red becomes violet none of this is new but i watched myself fall into it the other day for a while really playing with it And I thought, if I need a reminder, maybe everyone else does too. But I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.